0: Meditation. 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 It, depending think on think and, the quality
1: of it, my You know, there's
0: good days and bad days. I mean, wow, feel it's like soft. the waterfall of thoughts.
2: <laughs> Every now and then, a nice...
3: Um,
4: um, I can't think of
3: anything. This is Meditation in the City.
2: The Shambhala New York Podcast.
4: Hi, it's your host, Dave. I know this is a little unexpected. We are still technically on a break. With the podcast, as you may know, the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York is in between spaces, and so our regular weekly Dharma gatherings from which these podcast talks are taken have not been happening. But we did want to bring you this panel discussion, which was from November, so one of the last weekly Dharma gatherings in our prior space. This was a panel discussion moderated by Joy Gutierrez with Ethan Nickturn. Shante Smalls and David Perrin, Well, I'm sure by now you all know at least a little bit from the podcast, from various episodes of the podcast prior. This was a great discussion among and between the three teachers and Joy, the moderator, as well as the practitioners who were present in the audience, all about the state of Shambhala, what's going to happen as we transition out of this space into the unknown in the wake of various sexual abuse allegations, what is the state of Shambhala and where would we like to see it go? The first voice you will hear is the moderator, Joy Gutierrez.
5: So I guess before we um, might ask each of the teachers to introduce themselves, um, I think in the spirit of transparency, I just wanted to um, briefly uh, give the overview that Shambhala um, is right now experiencing a lot of turmoil and that is due to um, pretty credible allegations of sexual uh, misconduct by our spiritual leader and that um, came out in July um, And so there's been a lot of restructuring at the um, Shambhala International level. Uh, The governing council stepped down and an interim council has been formed. Um, And right now they are also selecting um, a process team. And then this local center um, is shutting its doors. Um, and moving to a location um, to be decided at the end of this year. Um, And so this is gonna be one of the last weekly Dharma gatherings. There is one more next Tuesday, and that will be taught by um, Acharya Spiegel, and I believe the title is Transitions. But um, uh, tonight we're we're, we're gonna have a a conversation with um, our three teachers. And so, uh, I wanted to, by way of introduction, um, have each of uh, our three teachers speak about what um, brought them to Shambhala and how did they become uh, a teacher in this tradition. So, start with Shante. Oh, okay. <clears throat>
0: Ironically enough one of the spaces we had been looking at I don't know if it's still on the table was the is the integral yoga Center and I was taking yoga classes there and they have a library a bookstore downstairs and I was uh, a member of another uh, uh, Dharma community at that point um, SGI soka Gakkai on 15th Street International and um, I was uh, sort of... Uh, into the community, but not totally the practices there. And I had um, saw this little book called Shambhala, Sacred Path of the Warrior, the little pocket edition, which I still have. And I picked it up and I started reading it. And um, the way that Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who's the founder of Shambhala, um, sort of explained both the Shambhala teachings and the Buddha Dharma really resonated with me. And I also happened to pick up, at the same time, a book by Pema Chodron, not knowing that she was his student. And uh, her style is very different, but also resonated with me. So I became curious about um, this was, I don't know, maybe 2003 or 2004, and um, (laughs) (laughs) pre-Google. But they were still the interwebs. And um, I think I somehow looked up, I was going to go to Gampo Abbey, Um, where um, in Nova Scotia where uh, 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 Pema spends most of her time and anyway some time went by and um, Google was invented and um, I found out that there was a Shambhala Center in New York and uh, so I started coming here um, 2006, started practicing in 2006 and um, Left my other center and um, started coming to the Tuesday night Dharma gatherings. I think in February or March of two thousand seven, and I really had no intentions of uh, or designs on being a Dharma teacher. I was in graduate school at the time, and I barely wanted—I didn't even want to be a professor, which I now am. And um, I um, thought, oh, I already have that part of my life covered. I just want to come and receive teachings, and. Um, Really what happened was as I got deeper into my Buddhist practice, uh, my meditation practice and my Shambhala practice, um, I think actually I started uh, doing some trainings. I became a Shambhala guide, um, able to give instruction, individual instruction and group instruction or however it was at the time. And then I think Ethan asked me to, uh, what was called assistant director at the time, uh, the first meditation uh, in everyday life that happened here in New York. And so I think that was 2010 when I uh, started uh, ADing for him and I really liked it. And uh, uh, I actually uh, moved out of New York for a couple of years uh, for work. And I was um, uh, in North Carolina and then in uh, Albuquerque, and when I came back to New York in 2014, I had kind of forgotten about teaching, and I had thought like I had kind of slid under the radar. And then next thing I know, um, <laughs> I was being recruited uh, to do. Uh, I think I think Ethan actually really talked me into it. Um, <laughs> I was like, no, no, thank you. And you're like, yeah, I think you should do it. And I was like, no. And you're like, okay, so you'll be doing it. And. Um, <laughs> And so uh, in, uh, I started uh, with the Everyday Life series. And um, I had been doing the um, Learn to Meditate. And then I was authorized as a teacher in 2015. And it, it's just gone from there. Um, it really uh, was kind of a, a apprenticeship for a while. And then it was, uh, it was on and popping. Um, yeah, so that's my, that was my journey.
3: Uh, so, again, David uh, Perrin, and um, I was living in North Carolina, actually, uh, in the mountains at a place called Penland School of Crafts, and um, I was learning to be a, a bookbinder, and um, <laughs> I was a little lost, i could say. <laughs> um, and it was fun. It was really fun. You get to like do craft arts. They had glass blowing and woodworking and everyone would party at night and work in the studios during the day. It was actually really fun. But I secretly wanted to be a writer. I was like a, I wanted to um, I wanted to write and I was trying to write the great American novel on the side of bookbinding or in the books that I was buying. <laughs> Um, And so I applied to graduate schools and MA programs in creative writing, and the only place that would accept me uh, was Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, which was founded by (laughs) Jagan Trumper-Ripochet, the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. Um, So I I showed up there in the summer of 1999 and uh, uh, loved it. And that was my first real formal, med- I had been meditating since high school, but that was the first time I received formal in-person instruction. And just in reading uh, trempa Rinpoche, um, in, in seeing Sakyong Mippon Rinpoche, um, just being in that community. And it was really the arts, that was the gate for me. So mm-hmm. that I actually dropped out of that program um, because... I don't know, if you name it after a beat, you have to drop out, I think, um, but, but, but I dropped out because I was also in love with Ann Keenan at the time, and we ended up um, being married, and we have now have three kids, so that was probably the best choice I've ever made, um, and uh, we, we eventually found our way to New York in 2002 and started coming to this exact gathering. Um, and started doing the Shambhala training, weekends, then called levels, and going through the um, whole curriculums, Shambhala School of Buddhist Studies, as it was called back in the day. And um, I also had no intention of teaching. I was actually still really interested in the arts, particularly in performance, and so there was a moment where, there were a few years there that myself, David Fraioli, and a few other people started a theater company called Gesture, which, if you're wondering, stands for Great Eastern Sun Theatrical Universe Reality Explosion. Oh, boy. <laughs> <Hi>. Yikes. <laughs> we put on original performances, including one of Ophelia's story based on Hamlet in that room right across the hall there, where we had three women playing Hamlet, and we had original songs and movement and dance, and it was like a real happening. And one of the um, old school teachers of Dharma Art, Jack Nyland, came to our performance and he fell in love. It was the first time he'd come back to Oshambala Center in many years, so we partnered together and we wrote children's books and we did all sorts of fun, crazy Dharma Art projects, and that was really where like, my sweet spot was. I was interested in that. Not so much teaching, but facilitating and being the director of that theater company and Etc. And it really was. Uh, I started on that. So people started whispering, saying, "Well, maybe you think about teaching." And I and I uh, really wasn't sure. And then there was one Tuesday night where I was here doing something else, and the teacher didn't show up for the weekly Dharma gathering. And so they were like, "There's j- just go, go." <laughs> and and I sat up here in front of a group like this, and it was uh, it was really magical because it was. Uh, um, something happened that night in terms of what I, what it meant to understand the Dharma and try to communicate it and try to relate with other people, and that has set me on the course of, of teaching. <clears throat>
6: uh, so I've been part of Shambhala for uh, forty years and change, um, forty one if you count the womb. Um,
5: Who's counting? <laughs> <laughs>
6: My mother actually sat a month-long retreat when she was pregnant with me, so I wonder if I get credit for (laughs) sitting that. Um, I don't. Uh, So I, uh, it's interesting because a lot of people who got interested in meditation or Buddhism uh, look to me and say, "Oh, this is so awesome that you grew up with this." I wish I had this when I was a kid. And, and you, you have to understand that your your parents are both uh, a very easy access point into um, this community and these teachings and also a huge obstacle um, mm. simultaneously. I'm not saying my specific parents were a huge <laughs> obstacle. They were very supportive. But uh, the desire to not do what your parents did and to have to accept that even though you have strong disagreements with some aspects of their approach to it, it's actually the right thing for you to do too that, that takes a while um, and uh, so I did the first weekend of Shambhala training when I was in uh, maybe a sophomore or junior in high school which my father actually taught uh, and um, I was really interested in Buddhism more classic Tibetan Buddhism, which the Shambhala teachings kind of globalize and bring into this notion of enlightened society and awaken the world and the warrior's way. Um, So it was really when I got to college that I started studying more the the Shambhala teachings and college was for me the time that I think I experienced the most um, sort of existential confusion and um, depression that I have uh, experienced at least in any phase of my life, uh, and the, the, the dharma really got me through it. And uh, uh, it, it, it seemed like a lot of other uh, people were experiencing similar forms of existential depression, and uh, yet when I would come home uh, in the mid-late 90s from college uh, here, I could be in a class and uh, I was the youngest person in the class by uh, about 20 years. And uh, that shifted a little bit. It's kind of interesting because those of us who are in our early mid 40s now, kind of if you look at Shambhala, represent this sort of not super existent generation. It's like we're the generation in Shambhala that forgets to vote or something like that. There's more younger people now and And uh, the the boomers, my parents' generation, really dominate. Um, So that was my initial um, impetus to do teacher training and things like that. And it's really, I haven't been back in this room in three weeks, and it's really emotional to be here, because I was just remembering the first time that I taught, which I think was late 2001, I was actually asked to assistant teach a a Shambhala School of Buddhist Studies course. And uh, when you assistant teach, you maybe Facilitate a discussion or email students. I'm pretty sure Google did exist then, did it? but it wasn't. I don't know. It, it, it didn't like rule the world, but yeah. I think it existed. It was,
0: oh, YouTube was 2005. Yeah, okay. yeah,
6: or maybe it was Friendster. I don't know. But <laughs> your job was to communicate with students. Um, but the the main teacher asked me to give a 15 minute Dharma talk on the the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, and uh, um, yeah, that's that's what started it. And then um, I've really been over the last 17 years interested in how uh, Buddhist thought and meditation practice applies to everything. You know, mostly, most directly, Western psychology, but activism, Dharma art, etc. And so, I think my um, inspiration for teaching has moved um, out of just working with other young people into really, uh, I think, what the Shambhala teachings are all about, which is applying. Uh, uh, a desire to awaken to pretty much every exploration that we could do in the modern world. So that's that's how I got here. Joy, how did you get here?
0: Yeah.
5: <laughs> I signed up for a, a two-for-one meditation in everyday life. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife uh, dragged me here. And, um, oh my God. and David was one of the teachers. Um, and I remember he had a chart and it had the uh, the rings of uh, from um, oh. turning the mind into an ally He had the chart up here and and so slowly um, I took the various levels that are offered and um, you know have been uh, I took the slow road to get to to where I am and um, I'm. I'm very um, fortunate to have such a a great sangha of members I I see here in the seated tonight. Um, So we blame David. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I wanted to, because the, the three of you are, are, you know, part of this generation of, of teachers. Um, I first, I wanted to mark this, this moment. Um, I mentioned earlier some of the context that's happening within our own Shambhala. But I also wanted to mention some of the things that are happening, um, you know, in the world because I feel that that um, is, is reflected in a Sangha somehow. Um So we have these California wildfires um, going on. Uh, we just had the midterm elections. Um, so there was a lot of attention paid with that. And then uh, we um, uh, experienced another, um, you know, active shooter scenario just yesterday in Chicago. And then uh, a few weeks ago, um, in one of the uh, synagogues, um, 11 elder members were gunned down. And so I bring that up um, because uh, there's a lot of things happening outside and, and inside our, our center. Um, and with you as our teachers who meet with students. And also talk with faculty and other community members or those who are new to meditation. Um, what's your sense of uh, sort of the line of questioning that students or, or people are coming to you with? What is the overall mood um, and what kinds of inquiry are you hearing?
0: Well, it's uh, shifting, I can say, with my students um, and also just with people I've um, been talking to. I had the real fortune uh, a week uh, a week ago, I was in Atlanta, where the actually the whole South, the West was burning, the whole South was flooding. It was really mm-hmm. insane. And um, I had the fortune, I was at the Atlanta Shambhala. I was in Atlanta for work, and I went to uh, the Atlanta Shambhala Center on Friday night uh, to hear Dr. Jan Willis, who is an incredible uh, black elder Buddhist teacher, Tibetan scholar, speaks Tibetan, uh, is a professor of religion uh, emeritus at uh, Wesleyan and now teaches at Agnes Scott in Atlanta, and she was doing a weekend on um, uh, ending white supremacy through a Buddhist lens. It was quite powerful, so I went to the Friday night talk, and... um, got to commune with some of the uh, uh, Shambhala folks there. And they have an amazing, I mean, they have buildings. It's a little wild. But um, I was really struck by um, the work she was really asking us to do. um, And really, uh, that she was asking, she was really saying that Buddhist centers in the West, in particular, though not exclusively, really need to center anti-oppression work and really need to stop perpetuating. Um, There's a weird kind of paradox where it's like there's kind of like we come to our meditation centers and we're like, woo, you know, we've escaped the crazy world out there and then we're perpetuating the very same things in here. (laughs) Toxic masculinity, white supremacy, classism, um, you know, misogyny. homophobia, transphobia, and, and uh, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes structurally, often both. And, um, and because the average, although not all, Buddhist leans center of, left of center, there's a kind of sense that no, I'm, I'm good, I'm one of the good ones, and that there's a kind of blinding to one's own um, uh, place in a structure of harm. And I think that uh, right after the uh, first Project Sunshine Report came out, and then really the second one, which really focused on Sakyang Pam Rinpoche, I think the kind of sense of devastation was really palpable. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people were like, I'm out. Some people were uh, really um, heartbroken, myself included. Just I spent a lot of uh, the summer in tears and I had just been in retreat with him. Uh, I, I think I got out a week before the report came out. So um, I think there was a tremendous amount of pain and, um, and then a lot of just questioning. And I would say now, almost you know, five or six months later, if it sort of feels like some of the dust has settled in terms of people who kind of think they want to stick with the program, as it were, And the question has really been or what I've seen is that uh, people are saying, instead of waiting and saying, well, can we do this? They're saying we're going to do this. This is what we want to do. We want to establish people of color um, retreats. We want to establish, you know, whatever, this wandering sangha. We want to, you know, um, I've seen many. uh, I'm having the opportunity to go and teach at other Shambhala centers and I'm seeing the center of the mandala really becoming individual centers, which I think is really powerful.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And people really um, feeling empowered to start things that they've been wanting. To, it was like these, these, these credible accusations against the Sakyang allowed room for all the things that many people have been fighting for for a long time that kept getting suppressed mm-hmm. um, and to come up. And I think that um, what I've seen is a real leadership from younger members, both younger in chronological age and younger in the Dharma. And to me, that is so powerful because that's the future of Shambhala. And for me, um, I've been really you know, quoting Thor, the Dharma, <laughs> the famous Dharma Sutras of Thor, <laughs> um, that when they say Asgard, their planet is, um, is not a place, it's a people, that Shambhala is not a place, it's not a building, it's, it's a people, it's a vision, it's a set of practices that really can and should emerge wherever. It's really quite rhizomatic, you know, it's like roots springing up many places. And um, so a lot of questioning of, of, of I think, um, unhelpful hierarchies, and a lot of support for helpful hierarchies, like more like mentorship, less like top-down, or more like transparency, less like I know best, more like conversation, less like um, dictation. Mm -hmm. So I think those, I think people are, there's a little bit of a good rebellion happening globally. And I'm really excited about that. And um, uh, there's also an incredible amount of commitment to practice. And um, uh, for me, having conversation with my my elders, um, that's been really important to not, to feel like I'm in conversation with people who've been around for a long time. I talk a fair amount with Acharya Galen Ferguson. Um, He's really become like a mentor for me. And um, and just uh, I think I think uh, those are some of the things I can think of now. Um, and I also, for me, one of the things that's been um, coming up is um, wanting to connect more with people across. Um, uh, the reason I was in Atlanta was for the American Studies Association conference, and I had put together a panel on uh, uh, Black Buddh- Black queer, and femme Buddhists and how to use Buddhism to combat anti-black racism, to combat mm-hmm. white supremacy. And the conversation was with a person from East Bay Center. They're all academics, but East Bay practitioner, uh, one of the students of, uh, one of uh, Reverend Angel's students, and uh, a Vipassana practitioner. And we, what, what I really felt was this tremendous joy about being in our room. And there were a lot of people who came. You know, we didn't know how it was going to fly at an academic conference, where people were like, "Thank you." You know, and um, and what I really felt was a sense of wanting to be a part of the larger Buddhist community, and that in particular, that particular case, a lot of larger Black Buddhist community. And uh, that's what I've heard from people: a longing for Shambhala to be more integrated with other Buddhist communities and less. That's been for me. Um, and then I'll stop here. Is that you know, when you hear Sharon Salzberg or Reverend Angel or Lama Rod or Gina Sharp, they don't start with, I'm a blah, 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 You don't really know, you're like vaguely know there's some, maybe there's Zen or there's something. But I feel like with Shambhalians, we're like, I'm Shambhala. <laughs> and it's a little weird. Um,
6: <laughs> a lot weird.
0: It's a, it's a little weird that that's what we kind of lead with. And I've been wanting that to recede more to the background and really wanting to be a part of a larger Buddhist community. And, um, and really seeing that there are already many Shambhalas, and that being OK. Um, so for me, and for a lot of people, they're, they're saying, I want to be part of a larger Buddhist community. I don't want to be so, why are Shambhalayans so segregated? Um, that's a really big shift that I've seen, and, um, and one that's felt so good for me. Um, to hear what other people, people are having some of the same struggles that we are, Um, sexual uh, misconduct with their leaders, um, racism, misogyny, you know, and it's like uh, looking at some place like the East Bay Center where they've done incredible work to work with that. It's like, how can we learn from those other places?
6: Yeah, I, I really like, Joy, how you sort of frame this discussion in terms of what's going on in the world, what's going on in Shambhala, because that um, that mirroring this whole year, which has felt very kind of surreal and astrological, um, you know, in, in the midst of um, <clears throat> everything that was going on in Shambala, uh, my wife's hometown in the mountains of California, just missed burning down over the summer, right as all this was happening. So it seems like there's, and people are, a lot of people are having like multiple experiences of, is this, has this been your year? Like, it, it's not just one thing, it's like lots of different collapses or questioning of structures and hierarchies and and it does really feel like there's, there is some mirroring thing um, happening. So, you know, just to talk to that, like what it's like to talk to friends or peers or students. Um, I, anxiety is always the first thing. And I would say maybe there's been since November 6th like a 10% alleviation of the anxiety but it also sort of feels like, well, did we just buy ourselves six months before fascism or? (laughs) um, So there's, the anxiety still seems to be there, but I also think that when you sit with it and sit with um, people, it really feels like right under that layer of anxiety is a lot of what Chante was talking about, that there's this kind of Possibility that what's happening is actually the the um, collapse of what wasn't working on a lot of different levels, um, and it also the mirroring for me keeps coming back to you know there's there's one level of it within Shambhala, which I think it, the the Buddhist structures in the West needed to go through this, especially Tibetan or Tibetan inspired Buddhist structures, which is there was this weird thing going on where Tibetan Buddhism, especially, would mostly attract, you know, uh, a mostly white, somewhat liberal, at least environmentally, like at least we like to recycle liberal crowd who would maybe, you know vote for the Democrat in the election mostly. There's, there are a few conservative Buddhists. Um, Uh, They often feel ostracized in Buddhist communities because they're about 5% of the population, but mostly this sort of liberal white group of people who, you know, lived through the uh, 1960s, feminism, civil rights movement, et cetera, 70s, Watergate. And so they view themselves as sort of progressive, but then their spiritual practice brings them back into a, a pretty strict classic patriarchal structure. And this came up in our conversation with Arthi about just how much of Asian culture is a strict patriarchal structure historically. And so it's this weird, we, we had this weird dance for a while where it was like, no, 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 no. This is the, this is the cool patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> the guru's not gonna mess with you, don't worry. Like, it's, it's the, and and um, that needed to be peeled back and I, I think that's that's kind of what's what's happening now so I do see the way I felt that in in American culture is this sort of notion after 2008 that um, okay Barack Obama's gonna save us from whatever was happening and and then that completely collapsed I mean you you cannot imagine an outcome you know if somebody was writing the script of 20 like Nobody would buy. I, I would follow one writer on on Twitter who basically said, like you go to writing school to, to learn to write, to write credible characters in fiction only to have the, the real characters be so, the real people be so unbelievable. <laughs> you know and and now what we're seeing in 2018 in in the American political world is you're seeing a lot of like there's at least twelve people. I'm going to say it right now. There were at least 12 people in the 2018 elections I like more than Barack Obama and I think are going to make better leaders, right? So, I mean, I love Barack Obama, but it's not, that's the other piece of patriarchy. It's not one person, and it's not um, one male person, and even though uh, the the men we've mentioned here are not uh, cisgendered uh, straight white men, there was this weird orientalism masking a, a questioning of patriarchy, I think, that um, we need to dive into more, and now we really have to. So um, I do think that there's, there's a, and I was saying this to David the other day, like the, the idea that Shambhala five years from now, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but it's one optimistic outcome could be everything we loved about Shambhala without um, the performative devotional loyalties that none of us really ever believed in um, is so exciting to me <laughs> that 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 possibility that that this could become a more grassroots, more inclusive, more representative. Um, more awakened community that could actually have something to mirror back to the outer world. I definitely don't think it's going to happen to twenty nineteen in twenty nineteen because I think we're still in the midst of the film familiarity collapsing. And, but um, uh, I'm trying to get myself to lean into that um, excitement, even as I'm feeling it's just it's really sad to be here tonight. I mean, it's great to be here with all of you, but. Um, I would be lying if I said that that wasn't part of my experience of like, oh, th- this, this is this is not the space where enlightened society is going to happen, mm. you know. Um, but maybe it was. It's pretty clear that it was never going to be this way.
3: Yeah, I, I want to pick up on the theme of the performative aspect of. Practice. I mean, there's a way in which, um, you know, coming into Shambhala, the whole sense of incorporation of the arts, the way spaces are laid out, um, the way the containers put together, the way protection is considered, mm-hmm. the way ornamentation is um, uh, sort of meant to be invoking and arousing uh, what we call wind horse or awakened mind. And so many of those things have been so helpful to me. And, and I really do believe that the structure, that there is value in creating structure. Um, and structure, if we live into structure with the right view and the right intention and the right mindfulness, structure can help to facilitate freedom and liberation. And so that, those, those are aspects that's, that I've learned that deeply here. And I've seen how this, actually, if we sit in this particular space, we've hosted so many amazing teachers in this space over the past 20 years. High-level Tibetan teachers. Mm-hmm. Teachers from all, from the insight community, from the Zen community, from, um, you know, not even Dharma communities. People, Artists have come through here. Amazing musicians and painters and uh, politicians have been here. We've had the Attorney General, the former Attorney General, <laughs> yeah, in this space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we won't we won't talk about that, but the point is...
6: Uh, that that one is, is my fault. Yeah. Yes, that was your fault. We didn't know, we didn't know. <laughs>
4: okay.
6: um,
3: we've had lots of different kinds of people here. We've even had some conservative <laughs> Dharma practitioners. Um... And so there's a way in which I I I've, I I, will, I grew up in this in the, on this floor. I really yes. do feel mm-hmm. like I grew up here, and I was beginning to and have raised my kids coming here. They they come here and they know where the cushions are and how to make forts out of them. They <laughs> they have friends here. They have learned to meditate on this floor. Um, and so, uh, and and at the same time, one of the things that happened for me this summer was that. Uh, this is this very interesting coincidence and in, talk about mirroring, Ethan, was this moment where, you know, I'm a morning person. And so I love to get up really early in the morning and have time to practice. And when you're in a family or you have roommates and that's your quiet time of day, and you're also a morning person, that's like actually a great time that I really had begun to kind of protect for myself. And so... There was a way in which, even though I would always, particularly to Anne, who's also a practitioner and a teacher and a longtime student and teacher uh, within Chimbala, taught a lot, has taught a lot in the children's program here, I would sort of say, oh yeah, let's practice together. But it never happened. And just in June, we kind of had this personal breakthrough between the two of us, I did, where I realized like that even though I was saying that I wanted her to come practice with me early in the morning, I didn't really mean it.
6: Mm. Mm.
3: Deep down, my intention was, this is my time for mm. me. And I don't actually want you here. That's <laughs> <laughs> just being honest. I mean, that's what is it is. And, and, and she felt, and she had felt that. And this is, we're talking about years of like, you know, doing similar practices together and never being able to practice together. And finally, to be able to have that moment to acknowledge the, the kind of selfishness of that my kid, when my kids were younger now they sleep in when they were younger and they would get up early in the morning it'd be like 5.30 in the morning I'd sit down to practice I'd be all ready and, and then I'd hear one of the babies go mommy and I'd be like Shit. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: right? so bonest right? of you <laughs> so <laughs> wait
6: so if they were saying mommy you... <laughs> I'm kidding I'm kidding Izzy says mama when she needs anything. Exactly. That's, what, that's my point.
3: <laughs> so there was this moment where I was able to really let that in. And we actually started practicing together. Yeah. We were practicing together for a week. And it felt, it just was like so wonderful. And then that this Project Sunshine came out, and it was like just a complete collapse. But do you know what happened? Was we kept we couldn't do what we were doing before. We would just literally all we could do was get up in the morning and we, but we kept getting up in the morning and we would we would just sit on the cushion and it was just the most basic elemental shamatha. It was just like wooden floor, sky, yeah. me, a, a tree outside, whatever it was. It was it, air, breathing air. Now in between the sobbing and the and the catharsis of the emotion. We sat together, and then at a certain point, we would turn to each other, and we'd go, we go, now? Mm. And then one of us would just start talking mm. and sharing with the other what was happening in that moment. And for all of you who have been forced to do dyads and shambala classes, <laughs> you know the feeling of being terrified to turn from your meditation cushion to, to someone, anyone, your life partner, and then the relief to actually be able to just relate to that, to that person and, and really like, see them and be seen. And that's what I've gotten at Shambhala, and that's what I, I see us peeling back so many layers in the way in which we have protected something for ourselves here from who, who, those of whom we consider outsiders based on whatever kind of bias or lens that we're looking through. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And it has been for a while, but I've gone along. I've yeah. gone along. Mm-hmm. I've gone along. And I've kind of, like, had my moments to speak up and say, well, maybe we should try this. No, no, no. And so, okay, go along. And now there's no more going along. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is I I that the real, the folk, because I was having a conversation today with a Dharma teacher, a good friend of mine on the West Coast, who said, do you know, do you, do you see people being really destabilized or dysregulated by the loss of the center? Like, is that really hard? And I said, it depends on who you're talking to. Mm. For those of whom... The attachment to this place is so strong that we're not sure what we're going to do without it. Yeah. For the people for whom coming into this place has been an obstacle, I don't know. I don't necessarily think that that mm. destabilization exists. There's opportunity. There's a lot of potentiality for all of us in this. Mm.
0: this you're making me think so much about a couple of things. One was uh, I had an opportunity to speak to the Sakyong and a Zoom call in September, and part of the logic of the call was to share. He's been having this uh, meet, in-person meetings with um, uh, women in uh, Halifax to hear about um, um, how the systems of patriarchy and Shabala have impacted them. He's been Zoom calling with different centers and having individual meetings. So I had an <clears throat> individual call with him, and um, you know, I talked to him a little bit about what i saw the impact of the project sunshine report but then we we just talked as like regular folks you know not as like teacher to student even though he is my teacher um and um and it was really good to see him and um you know holding someone who you love who's uh, accused of harm is very complex and um and uh, one of the things we talked about was, um, well, one of the things I saw for myself was what was actually real and what was fake for myself. Mm-hmm. What was, um, what really stuck and what was kind of my own um, hubris and my own kind of investment in... Um, um, something for show and it got really it's gotten really raw mm-hmm. and what I realized is that oh I'm really a Shambhalian I don't want to leave Shambhala I am very committed to the vision of Shambhala I'm very committed to the practices that I, I do I'm very committed to being a Buddhist in the Shambhala lineage okay so that was clarification and, and that um, I, I really believe in these teachings and I, I you know believe in my teacher at the same time, I've f- I felt a sense of incredible freedom that um, I could really explore uh, what it means to be a human being trying to uh, manifest uh, basic goodness a- and enlighten society. And what it's been a- is a lot of um, really hard shit <laughs> on a personal level. Uh, going through a breakup. Um, uh, Health stuff, uh, uh, work. <laughs> it's like it's like every every aspect, and it's like what is my what is what is real? What am I really willing to do? And it's so interesting that um, I, I've been doing a lot of shamatha, very little of the advanced practices. Although I've been reading it incredible, I've been doing a lot of studying too. Mm-hmm. Um, starting with the first Buddhist sutras and just going through them and reading them and um, also um, other Dungeons and Dragons practices that I you know, do, reading about them. And, um, and I've really felt this sense of student so powerfully, this sense of having to learn and um, be in that stream um, if I want to continue to be a teacher, be, really being a student. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, I, I, I call myself a true believer. Mm-hmm. I am like, you know, um, it was very funny. I was uh, having brunch with um, a friend the other day in my neighborhood, and these three young men next to us were saying their Christian prayers. And then my food came, and I did my Shambhala prayer. And my friend was kind of like, okay, weirdo, you know. Yeah. And I was like... <laughs> You know, like giving thanks for this food. And she's like, anyway, you know. And, and there's, a, there's a kind of sense of um, that this is real for me. You know, this is like, this is my life. And that, um, and uh, if everything is stripped away, I still have, have this. And that's, it's not just something I say I do. It's something I really, really do. And it's hard it's hard to practice some days. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to practice yeah. some days um, when I'm experiencing emotional upheaval or physical depression or incredible anger. And um, it's like, oh, there's the cushion. And I'm like, okay, there it is. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I rather, I want to watch The Good Place instead, you know? And, um, and other times there's a lot of relief from practicing and connecting with other practitioners. And I felt a real sense of, are we bullshit or are we real? You know what I mean? Are we just, we, do we just say these things? Or are we really, are we really, because, you know, the world needs people who are really practicing, you know, from the smallest level to the largest. It's, I haven't talked to one person in my life who, who hasn't experienced an incredible devastation this year, incredible incredible hardship, incredible pain. And um, I really feel that the value of practice is so that I can just be available. Um, you know, not to get anyone to join Shambhala, not to get anyone to be a Buddhist, but just to, you know, be a friend or be whatever it is. And it's hard when um, you're I'm sitting in the middle of the fire and I'm so angry or I'm so hurt or whatever it is. And then I look up and I, you know, David was talking about You know, my whole—the way my whole apartment is arranged—is because of Shambhala. Mm. You know, the whole—the whole idea of this Shambhala household. I mean, that's the name of my Wi-Fi network. It's ridiculous. (laughs) You know what I mean? And um, (laughs) the flowers and the where the paint and where things are positioned and the feng shui and the kind of—and not as a kind of importation of something that's, but as a real. Reflection of of wakefulness, so that people walk into my place, they feel like they're welcome, mm-hmm. and they feel like there's some logic, and they feel like there's some sense of relaxation, and um, and that's part of you know part of growing up has been like uh, whatever I have offering it mm-hmm. and whatever I have making it beautifying it, even if it's a milk crate. You know what I mean? Finding a little cloth and putting something on top of it. Not having broken things. Just really simple stuff and valuing all that I have. And that's, Shambhala has taught me how to be a human being. It really has taught me about how to be a human being. Um, But also there's a real arrogance in Shambhala Mm. that is unchecked. Mm. And it's, this is what I said to the Sakang, I said, we need a collective, some collective humility we need to slow down we need um, we really need it as a community less oh, I'm going to you know Scorpion seal 57 or I'm going to the next thing and I'm doing the, <laughs> and I'm and I did that and what practice you have and, then, and that's all great but we need some relaxation we need some humility and some love and some gentleness on the just real one-to-one level not gossip not. Anger, not just not you owe me, Mm -hmm. but just real. Hi, hey, how are you? Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. I feel that this is humbling because when things came out about Soyo Rinpoche last year and all the other Kagyu teachers, it was on no one's radar except for a really few that this could a year later this would be happening here. Mm -hmm. And I feel that this humility is spacious. You know, for me, um, and so I'm. I'm really curious what that's going to look like uh, going going forward.
5: Thank you, Shante. Um, I think um, you have mentioned a lot of um, terms um, like patriarchy and um, homophobia, racism. Uh, classism um, and um, as someone who is I guess relatively new to the Shambhala path um, one of the questions I had as I was um, um, studying um, was why um, or is there an opportunity for the Shambhala teachings to be more explicit about these isms, which are basically man-made constructs, but but they are the causes of, of really, um, you know, the kinds of suffering that um, many of us experience in our daily life. So I was always struck by how things were not named within the, the teachings, and I'm wondering what you think about that, and if there's, um, an opportunity in the next iteration or the evolution of Shambhala. And and, and I'll just preface that with saying um, that I've been working with the Race, Racism, and Racial Inequality group, and that's quite a mouthful, (laughs) but that is not about inclusivity and diversity. That's a very different term. We are trying to undo what we have learned about these systemic issues. Um, And so I have found that that's been really enriching. Um, And they sort of went hand in hand for me with with the levels and the Everyday Life series. So I was wondering if you could speak to that.
3: I mean, the the immediate sort of gut response to that is it's not the teachings, it's the teachers.
5: Mm. Mm.
0: Speak on it.
6: <laughs>
3: because it's it, it because in, in my because the teach it's all there in the teaching. Do you know what I mean? Like we, like the teach our teachings are based on. Are we moving towards um, treating each other the way that Chante was just describing, or are we moving towards cowardice, divisiveness, violence, aggression, and and operating out of fear twenty four seven? And I think that, you know, um, for me, it, 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 it's sort of like, if you, if you, I have to be honest with myself, if I drop myself up into a totally different cultural context, right, and I say the things that I'm saying, how are they going to come off versus if I'm in a context where most of the people look like me and have come from similar circumstances that I do? So I'll give you an example. I, what, part of my activism has been around um, trying to move um, the philanthropic industrial complex into being more uh, around justice and parity. And I remember in the early 2000s, I was at a community foundation and um, I was a donor Right, so I, here I, I come as a wealthy white cis man, and I'm in a room uh, full of activists. Because at this particular, communi- this particular community foundation, the way the funds are distributed is are they're, they're handed over by the donors to fund, funder, uh, activist funding circles or funding boards. And so I'm standing in this room kind of in the back, and at one point, mo- you know, um, uh, in the minority, and uh, in my embodiment, and, and at one point, someone says, "You know, there's someone in this room who hasn't stated their identity. They haven't said they haven't said that they are actually a donor." And there's really not many, if any, other donors in the room. Is true because I was also like playing apprentice to this foundation, and so there was a way in which um, that space was able to uh, what felt in the moment like this horrifying experience of being called out. But I've since come to recognize was I was being called in. Mm -hmm. And so because um, these teachings are fundamentally about calling folks in to deal with what the root of suffering is on a personal and social and interpersonal level, that's what the teachings are all about. But there's ways in which um, and you put a cultural context, you overlay the, the context and the history of this country on top of that, and you're bound to repeat some of the same mistakes, all the mistakes that Shante is talking about and referring to, Ethan too. That is, that kind of implicit bias, there's no way um, through that but to go through it. So, there needs, we all need to be as teachers committing to doing that training and that work in order to be able to sit in this seat. That's like a non negotiable for me now. Um, and I think that that's, I think we're moving in that direction, right? That, that that's, that's what we want to see as, as, as leaders, as part of a faculty circle, that, um, and as mini- as administrators, that in these new forms that arise, that the the declaration to, um, the commitment to uh, anti-oppressive practice as part of the Dharma practice, as central, integrate to it, is that's... That needs to be reflected. Otherwise, the teachings will only be partially heard. They've Mm. only been partially heard. Mm. Maybe we've only heard some one very, like, under 5 or 2%. That's what I, and I actually do feel that when I go back and study the Shambhala teachings, I'm like, yeah, you know, it talks about monarchy and imperialism and all the rest of this stuff, but maybe I actually have a lot more to understand. Maybe there's been an interpretation of this which is actually not at all accurate. And I've integrated that, and now I need to go back and, and approach these with a, a very fresh mind.
5: We'll take some questions from.
2: I don't speak English very well. I'm new in the US, and I'm still learning English, so I, I apologize. It's my first day here, and I would like to know what Sh- Shimbala is. Hmm. Ah. No, Right. I'm asking this because I guess that this is something great and, and with a great teachings, but I know the story of all of you and how you got into Shimbala and, and everything. But I think that, and we've, we talk, we, we have, you have been um, given your opinion, your thoughts. But I would like to know what Shimbala is because I think that I guess it's something great, and we should.
6: Um, so, <clears throat> Shimbala is two things. in In our sense, it's a lineage of what's called tantric or Vajrayana, uh, to use a, a Sanskrit word, Buddhism. That. Um, was founded by Chogim Trungpa, who was a a lama or a lineage holder in two of the four main schools of of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, Shambhala is also a set of mythological and um, teachings that kind of weave in and out of the main and smaller lineages of Tibetan Buddhism, um, a couple lineages that aren't, um, exist in anymore, like one small school called the Jonang School of Tibetan Buddhism talked a lot about this mythical kingdom, this enlightened society which some people believed was actually like a um, I used to say Atlantis lost city of Atlantis myth but now I'll say like a Wakanda myth because <laughs> that's a better um, hidden kingdom mythology just to give the Marvel shout out. Um, and uh, And so the notion is that the The lineage of Shambhala is primarily based on bringing tantric Buddhist and shamanistic Tibetan uh, traditions into a social and cultural uh, context. And so um, one of the terms that's used for a Shambhala practitioner, rather than um, using um, uh, terms like uh, monk or nun or yogi, is warrior. And warrior generally refers to a householder practitioner who is trying to fully become enlightened in life in the world um, rather than living a primarily retreat or monastic life, although we do have monastic practitioners. So it's it's both a lineage that was turned into a full Buddhist lineage by Chogim Chunghurmche and it's a mythology that weaves throughout Tibetan Buddhism of a hidden enlightened society.
2: And the teachings are about meditation, or what other the teachings or the practice?
6: Yeah, did, did somebody bring you here tonight? I'm just wondering how did you?
2: No, no, I. You just wandered in. Yeah. <laughs> no. I I wanted to know about uh, B- Buddhism mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Shimbala and that's why I, I came. But nobody brought me here.
6: Yes, great. So so mo- like other Buddhist schools, there's there's You can uh, break it up into eight aspects, or you can break it up into three aspects. To put it most simply, that there's a body of meditative teachings. There's a body of teachings on um, study, studying the mind, and studying the metaphysical nature of reality. And then there's a body of teachings on ethical conduct or being skillful and compassionate uh, in the choices we make in the world. So... um, most people get interested in Buddhism in the West because of mindfulness or meditation and that's definitely part of the teachings. But if you only focus on that, you often end up wanting the rest of it at some point because it's it's actually more it's actually a more complete educational system than, than just meditation. But meditation is a big part of it. Is that helpful?
2: Yes, yes. Thank
1: you. Thanks Thank for
3: coming. You. Thank you. Every ending is a beginning. That's right.
1: Um, I'm just—I'm curious if there's a possibility of an update on what a new Shambhala Center might look like, and if so, if we've reached that point, what might the administrative structure look like, and how do you think that would differ from the past?
4: Hmm.
0: Ashoka, thank you for asking these easy (laughs) questions.
3: There was a community meeting, so yeah, thank you, Ashoka. There was a community meeting last week, and we had about 40 or 50 people, and a few of us were talking about the meeting, actually, um, before we came in here, and one of the things that we mentioned was that there was actually a really remarkable presence and um, um, just kind of like a, a... a spirit of patience and a spirit of wanting to move prudently and not react out of fear and not jump into another lease or jump into another situation without doing our due diligence and our homework. So it's really unknown, actually, that there, um, there was a p- possibility of maybe moving into this integral yoga space. But the majority sentiment that I heard at that meeting was, no, it's too soon. We don't know if we can afford it, and why would we jump into that before we don't before we know our other options? Two other things were happening. One, Chante mentioned the Wandering Sangha. There's a lot of energy around creating neighborhood groups mm-hmm. so that people can begin to connect with each other and start to move this party into their homes, which has all along been an inspiration for years. We've thought about how do we make this happen, and one of the things about having a centralized um, center is that that actually is a demotivating factor for people figuring it out in their local situations because they always just resort to coming here because it's a very nice, spacious place. So there's energy and work around that. There are people working on that as we speak. And then the third thing is what is this governance structure going to look like? And it's pretty clear that they're, they're at the international level, the way that the previous uh, appointed governing council uh, uh, all stepped down. And um, they, uh, what they did is they gathered a group of advisors to then solicit nomita- nominations from the community to, to be on an interim governing council for a year. So there was there's pretty widespread widespread support for doing something of the. The, a similar here, where there would be a nominating process? There was a lot of talk about uh, representation, but not just diversity, like Joy was talking about, but actually really parity around the table mm-hmm. of people who have a collect, they have a stake in what Shambala is. We sometimes talk about the community at Shambala, which is, I think, a misnomer because I don't, I've never seen the community in one place at one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we need to figure out a way in which each of those folks um, or representative of those sanghas, those micro-sanghas, can come together on some sort of, I was joking with these, it's like a Jedi Council. It needs yeah. to be some sort of way in which there's a big room and people are talking to each other and sort of talking about, like, do we even need one big physical center? Right. Like, do, Or uh, is there a way to be in different neighborhoods, pop-ups, using the internet, there, there's so many ways in which whatever Shambhala is going to be next is very much unknown. And I think that's being acknowledged at all the different levels of kind of the traditional hierarchy. We can't actually go back to doing what we were doing before, literally because there's no one to appoint anyone. The Sakyang has stepped back from, as you know, as from, from teaching and administering. So anyone who used to be in that echelon of, 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 of folks, like they're not really in a position to appoint anyone. So this sense of the grassroots um, and the community members ourselves, um, sort of speaking our mind and what we want to see and being able to have a healthy debate around that, I think that's, that's where we're at. There are people that are actually going to start to meet to talk about what, what could the process look like around nominating and seating at least an interim group of people. So there's going to be a conversation around that.
1: So just sort of following up on that, um, you know, it strikes me when we look at the history of our community, there's a lot of people who are not in the room right now. Mm -hmm. who rightly or wrongly or for whatever reason may have felt alienated by things changing, um, new teachers stepping up. And I wonder if you guys have given any thought to how you would bring some of these people to the table. right? People who, because it feels like we're in this really potent moment where we could look at some of the divisions and pain that's happened in our Sangha. And there's been a lot to go along with all the joy. And you know, I can see that you, you guys are sort of stepping into this leadership role. And I, I think that's really useful. And I'm, I'm very grateful for you guys, you folks doing this. And I just wondered if you'd thought about this moment and how it might be used to kind of almost reconnect as a family. Because there's a lot, I think, of wisdom that some people who are not here, I think, could bring to the next base. Uh,
0: I have to say, I have maybe a more... I don't... So I've left the New York Center as a member, And I feel the project of the New York Center is, um, uh, I really wanna go elsewhere for me individually. I personally wanna really, my focus is really working with black and other, indigenous and people of color, as well as LGBTQ folks. So I really, think I've exhausted myself um, and, and feel that the, you know, I, I also sometimes feel, I wonder if there's um, about the limits of the family metaphor mm. because of the violence of family sometimes mm. and the way that um, family can occlude um, disagreement. And sometimes in Shambhala, I feel like disagreement is sometimes noted as divisiveness. Mm. And I think there's a, my hope is for many Shambhalas, actually. That's my Mm. real, that's my real hope. Um, I feel less inspired by a unified Shambhala and more, I feel like unity is in the vision Mm. and not necessarily in a space. As long as people hold a vision, we can come together and, and go apart as we please. But I personally have been finding sangha among uh, people not necessarily geographically close to me. So um, we formed a People of Color Council that includes right now mostly Canadians and people in the US. We're also trying to expand to people in Mexico and other um, uh continental Africa and continental Europe. So for me, it's really about finding the alignments based on what kind of work we want to do. And I feel that I'm not in a position, nor do I have a desire to heal old wounds Um, of the sort of historical Shambhala kind. I feel that for me, the kind of work that I've been wanting, been doing in Shambhala and wanting to do, I want that to be front and center. Hmm. So that's, race work, that's gender and sexuality work, and that's um, I want that to be the center. So I think that's different than what other people want. And I want there to be multiple things happening because I think actually there are people who weren't born when some of these divisions were happening and could care less about them. And then there are other people who were born into this and care very much about them. And I feel like rather than silencing one or the other having different iterations is really my, that's what I want to do. Um, I'm really focused on um, hopefully trying to get something started in Brooklyn and um, and uh, actually teaching a lot elsewhere. Um, so for me, it really is about moving forward and... Um, what I've really found is that there are a lot of folks of color who want these teachings, and that's what I feel my abilities—that's uh, where my abilities are, and and that's what I—that's what I want. That's my shambhala. Um,
6: think I agree with everything you said and so I'm trying to figure out I I, um, and I was thinking about my parents who are um, have been in Shambhala and have hardly any relationship with each other mm. and have completely their own uh, relationship with Shambhala and, and so forth so there's that's the thing about a movement in a global community for me is that it's uh, um, people do have their own reasons for doing it and um, <clears throat> uh, I I, um, I always feel like the wind horse or the energy is the most raised when we are really um, doing what inspires us and working with the people we want to work with and um, so it, I would encourage everybody in this room, uh, if, if there's some project that you want to work on, you're probably not alone in that. There's going to be lots of opportunities to study Dharma in the Shambhala tradition. And um, I think there is a kind of unifying. That, that's, I, I think this is why, if I was going to study the history of the world, because there's so much that doesn't work about patriarchy as a system, but it is the simplest way to bring people together, right? If we have one father figure, we know we're all on the same team. And if that is collapsing or restructuring here, I, I just think maybe it's the opportunity to really see, like, what what does, what is, as Sakyang Nipah Rinpoche likes to say, what is the binding factor? Um, Because it could also be the case that we were operating on some fake binding factors. Mm -hmm. And that may have actually taken energy out of the room, even as it held something together. Um, Yeah, yeah. so um, I think we are each, you know, what I I think, at least the three of us, and maybe the four of us, I don't want to bring Joy into our (laughs) clique, or our group texts, unless you want to be, they're fun, um, <laughs> <laughs> sure they um, is sort of really trying to support each other as peers and friends and colleagues in terms of what connections and audiences and, and what, what Shambhala we're, we're each trying to work with. And I, I think the other thing I've, I've found it was um, is uh, the, the, the real humility factor for me has always been realizing that the audience and the students that I I was trying to connect with wanted something completely different from what I thought they wanted. And so that, those real connections for me are always what determines the next steps. Um, So, Ashok, I want to say all that because I I really hear you and I... um, I feel what you're saying and I I totally agree with you and at the same time I don't I don't know that it's any of our places to bring people into the room especially since I, I don't I'm not even sure who you I when when you said that I think of probably different people from who you were thinking of so um, but if you want to work together and figure something out I'm completely down for that I just don't know what a what a group effort looks like without the patriarch, which is what's totally devastating and what's totally inspiring about this moment is we have to figure out uh, a, a, new reason, a new reason to come together. And um, there are really two things that make up Shambhala, basic goodness, a belief in basic goodness, and the desire to create enlightened society. And now, how many different structures could you possibly, and projects could you possibly imagine that fit into the, that mission statement? It's probably different for everyone in this room.
1: I think, I think this one was, yeah, you had your
7: hand up. Uh, I, first of all, really appreciate what you guys have done tonight, you know, uh, telling us about your personal story and uh, connecting with practitioners old and new. Uh, And uh, I uh, agree with you that uh, um, we're in a moment where multiplicities, you know, multiplicity of projects is gonna enrich this community moving forward. Um, I I would like to uh, also um, uh, put forward a question. Um, In terms of, you know, it, it looks like whatever was the one thing that would bring us together is seen as uh obstacle, uh, something that we have finally freed ourselves from. And yet some very simple basic things like the fact that there was structured programming, like levels mm-hmm. uh, and a space for all of us to get together. You know, we follow our individual projects, but the concept that there will be some structure where we have the option to come together. Not something that's going to be forced upon us. So, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, uh, oh, does it have to be this patriarchal figure? Do we have to be in in, uh, this expensive piece of Manhattan real estate? Probably not. Probably there are other ways to get together, to have a central place to go. Because if we don't have the programming, with those beautiful, not just the levels, but you know, the everyday life series, the guide training and all that, uh, the, the the answer that I heard is oh you, but you can go to Karma Churling oh you can go to Chicago you can go to, go to you know and I think we're actually avoiding it this isn't you know we're not facing it if, if we believe in the structured teachings mm-hmm. we should eventually think about cultivating those structured c- c- teachings here in New York City not least to make it affordable right from right now for me to do sacred path or whatever in Karma is a totally mm-hmm. different budget mm-hmm. right. that I may or may not uh, you know the, the concept that we would at least have the option to come together not necessarily in the same terms I think we could separate I'd be yeah. curious to, to see if you guys have any uh, ideas yeah about I how, mean I how, think I think that
3: I I, don't, I think it would be hard for us to find anyone in this room or anywhere that isn't hundred percent committed to, sh- to um, sharing the Shemala teachings. Yeah, yeah and so so I I hear your question about structure and the unknown and there it that it, it is a very unstable time because we don't know what that structure will take but in fact the Shambhala teachings themselves are in, incredibly instructive on how to work with groundlessness and fear and so um, I think the intention is there. I think the commitment is there. But I think what's what's not totally clear is that the uh, the, the old structure and the way in which those uh, it was assumed those teachings would be presented is now up in the air. So all three of us have questions around you know just this idea of who can present what. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like Shante and Ethan both would like to offer refuge and possibly bodhisattva vows to potential practitioners. It's not clear yet whether that, you know, that that could happen, because under the old structure, there were only a very few people who could present that. So we're moving into a new age where teacher, there's going to be both, uh, there's going to be a meeting, ideally, um, of this kind of... um, heaven element of the, the, the leadership, the lineage, however you want to look at that, and then the meeting of the students and the grassroots. And the students themselves, and this is similar to what I would say to Ashoka's point, it becomes incumbent on us to reach out to the teachers and say, this is what I want to make happen, not to wait for the Shamala Center to email you and say, this is, this is the next program. Say, I need to take this, and who else needs to take this, and what teacher can present it? We're going to have to create the house now. We have to build the house, and Shambala was always about that. Mm-hmm. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche taught from soup to nuts. He taught from beginning to end. He taught looking into a blank piece of paper where nothing is there mm-hmm. to sweeping up after the program, and you've taken everything out of the room. So we actually have those teachers, uh, that those teachings, and that how to build that container in what we do, and we need to begin to have the confidence. And similarly, Ashoka is like, we need to have the confidence and say, it's not about being judged or who's going to let us do what anymore, right? We want to have deference to form and tradition. That's true. But deference, that's reasonable and that doesn't limit and cut off. I think that what Shantae was saying before is like these rituals, these ways in which... One of the things that Shambhala, I think, really needs to figure out is this is this notion of culture and cultural practices and the way we get, gather together as a community and the, and the educational path that we go through. Because mm. there's a lot of assumptions and just the way those two things intermingle, but there's a lot of inconsistencies and blind spots around that. So it's going to take the people who want to get educated and the people who want to celebrate our winter solstice holidays actually called Children's Day. Mm. So there's no center to do that. So the folks who wanna do that need to figure out a place to gather to do that ritual because they want to share with their children basic goodness and enlightened society. We're all in that together now. There's no one who's gonna come and say, here's how it's all laid out.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's right. I really think that, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't consider myself, I'm not um, in any form of leadership. Uh, what I really wanna do is teach and study Work with my students. Governance is not for me. <laughs> um, uh, it's just the Shambhala governance—I, I, you know, I'm done with that. But I really do think that, you know, if you want, you know, Shastri Basetta was here earlier. You know, I, I really want you to teach Drala or Char Spiegel or one of us or someone else. You know, I think that that's however the structure is going to go. You can contact that or contact. I, I will assume that there's going to be some kind of weekly Dharma gathering and I will assume that there's going to be some kind of levels happening, mm-hmm. be, some Shambhala training. I also think other things are going to happen that are going to be really great. And so I know Ethan is uh, planning on doing a kind of uh, Buddhist studies. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm teaching like, I don't even know how many level ones, not here. And uh, uh, I think three of them or so are... are specifically for people of color. We're doing a people of color leadership retreat at Casa Worm. I think anything could happen. And I do think um, maybe it's about gathering folks and then finding a teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like all these people now who are like uh, doing homeschooling in groups, you know, where they do group schooling. And so I think there will be something that arises, but there's going to be this interim period where I would say at least for a year where it's not... You can go to X address. I think that will definitely happen because New York is a notable point in, um, for a lot of things, but definitely for Buddhism. And it would be a shame if there was no beacon of Shambhala that was you know, consistent. And I think that's gonna happen, but in the interim, all of us have to, um, I think we have to have a little bit more contact with each other like a little bit more intimacy with each other and say you know um, someone just started an email list and now it has I don't know 50 or 60 people on it and anyone could if people who are on the wandering sangha will you just raise your hand so you can you know you can okay you can see these folks and get on that mailing list and they're putting together a retreat just a meditation retreat Mm. you know low cost they're finding a space in December and I think I think it is going to be those kind of things, and I think if you want, if you're like, oh, I want to do level whatever, um, uh, I think that that's possible, mm-hmm. you know. So we are really—I don't think we're just blowing smoke. gas like we don't know; it's all groundless. I think it's just—I think it's just really that situation. Yeah. And I, you know, for me, I've really stepped away, so I really am another level away from that. But none of us are not. People are going to continue teaching and people are gonna continue being students. So that may be on Zoom, or that may be in small, at someone's house, you know? So it's, um, I think of this as the moment, I think of this as preparing for when the eventual fascism takes over and we have to do our teachings in hiding, right? And we can't have a center. So this is training for that, right? And this is training for when our teachings are outlawed. And so we have to learn how to practice it. Hey, okay, maybe I'm just, maybe that's just me. but um, We have to to come together in ways that are, um, when we have this gap, which we're guaranteed to have, what can we do in that gap? How can we bring people back? Um, There are people I'm thinking of, I know who left Shambhala um, because they felt that they had given their all and that they were just going to continue to be used. And now I see those people coming back because the situation has dissolved. So I think that the question is, what kind of things can we create where people feel they can be a part of? Mm -hmm.
7: Um, Thank you.
5: Um, I think we are out of time. Um, If you have questions, please join us in the community room. We have um, food and refreshments, and um, the teachers will be available for your um, questions.
4: Thank you, Joy, Ethan, Shante, and David. And thanks to everyone for listening and everyone who attended the talk for uh, asking great questions. Thanks for hanging in there in uh, a period of uncertainty. Okay. Later.